0: listening to episode 113 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Steph McKenna
1: and I'm Simon Jones
0: and it's Sunday the 13th of September here in Norwich and we are here for our final event as part of Norwich Crime Writing Festival 2020.
1: It's been a pretty amazing weekend Steph.
0: It has, it's been jam-packed hasn't it? It's been lovely to take part in the festival from home.
1: Yeah, so if you missed any of our events, the good news is that you can still check out the videos over on YouTube and you can, of course, listen to our previous podcasts as well. So we'll put links to everything down in the show notes and you can, of course, check it all out at noiridge.co.uk. So for our grand finale today on the podcast, we have Sophie Hanna and Dr. Mark Aldridge talking about Agatha Christie and all things Hercule Poirot.
0: Sophie Hanna is an internationally best-selling crime author and has written a series of continuation novels based on Hercule Poirot. Dr Mark Aldridge is a lecturer, film historian and author of the definitive book about Agatha Christie's book adaptations on film and television called Agatha Christie On Screen. His upcoming book, Agatha Christie's Poirot, The Greatest Detective in the World, which will be released in October, is a lively and accessible history of the world's favourite fictional detective.
1: And as you'll find out in this podcast, Sophie is a big fan of it. So yeah, these these two are probably some of the most knowledgeable people on the planet about Poirot and Agatha Christie. So it's quite a delightful conversation. And we have our chief exec, Chris Scribble, hosting the chat.
2: Thank you very much, Simon. And welcome to Sophie Hanna and Dr. Mark Aldridge, who are joining us for this Noirich podcast. Welcome, both of you. Thank you.
3: Hi, great to be here.
2: It is. I mean, I'd like to, you know, because of COVID, etc., we are all in separate locations joined by the overwhelming power of the internet, fingers crossed. But uh, I'd like obviously everyone to imagine that I'm gathering you in some sort of drawing room in a Poirot-esque fashion to have the kind of denouement of a major mystery is about to unfold in front of us. Of course, that mystery is Poirot himself this time around. But um, I just want to start by... Briefly introducing you to our listeners, Um, Sophie Hanna, uh, an internationally best-selling author of crime fiction, whose work has been published to date, I think, in at least 49 languages and and in over 50 countries worldwide. As well as uh, her crime writing career, she is an award-winning poet, a writer of non-fiction and self-help books, a podcaster, the founder-director of the highly successful coaching program for writers called Dream Author and the co-creator and course director of a master's crime and thriller writing program at the University of Cambridge. Do you have any spare time, Sophie?
3: No, uh, Chris, I don't. Um, (laughs) I'm going to be honest, it's an issue.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for making time this morning for it. Um, (laughs) She's joining us today after the recent publication of The Fourth in a series of Agatha Christie estate-approved pyro continuation novels, uh, the fourth one is The Killings at Kingfisher Hill, which we will come back to very shortly. And the fourth of these books, like the previous three, has entered the Sunday Times bestseller list on publication. So congratulations, Sophie.
3: Thank you. Yes, that was very exciting. And in fact, I've, um, I've had various different um, um, goes at this experience. So I've had quite a few books in my time in the top 10. And what I notice is... When I remember that the chart is coming out that day and I spend the day thinking, I wonder if I'm going to get into the top 10, then even if I do, it's somehow not as good as days like like last week when I completely forgot the day uh, that the chart came out. So I just wasn't thinking, I wonder if my Poirot is going to get into the top 10. And so I just got this amazing email completely like out of the blue and it was a complete surprise. And I was I was just so happy because I hadn't even, I hadn't gone through the whole will it, won't it. But yeah. Thank you very much. If anyone is listening who bought it and got it to the top 10, thank you very much to use.
2: Fantastic. And Sophie is joined today by Dr Mark Aldridge, a senior lecturer at Solent University, Southampton, in the School of Media, Arts and Technology. His books include perhaps The Definitive Guide to Agatha Christie's uh, Book Adaptations on Film and TV, Agatha Christie on Screen, as well as The Birth of British Television, is about to be published any moment. Agatha Christie's Poirot, The Greatest Detective in the World, will be published at the very end of this month by HarperCollins and is available to pre-order on any of your favourite book-buying platforms right now. That's correct, is it not, Mark?
4: That's correct. Yes, yeah, thank you. Oh, it makes it sound so exciting. Uh, it's actually going to happen after uh, everything this year. So uh, I'm looking forward to actually seeing a physical copy myself because we're early September. Yeah.
3: Can I just butt in here and say that I have recently just finished reading Mark's book on Poirot and it's absolutely amazing. Like if you if you love Agatha Christie or if you love Poirot, you have to buy this book because it's the kind of book that like, you start reading it. It's just so Moorish and and like it's just I just loved every second of it but it's also the kind of book that I will read again and again it's the kind of book that I can imagine like looking up because it goes through in great detail and in a very organized way you know all the Poirot novels just everything everything relating to Poirot so I know that I'm going to be you know often thinking what did Mark say again about (laughs) guys and going back and finding that bit so I would, I would strongly urge you to to uh, pre-order it immediately because it's so brilliant. Thank you, Stephen. We can stop now. Can't we? <laughs> is <Isn't>
4: that everything? <amazing? laughs>
2: it is indeed really uh, kind of quite addictive because you know that there's a sort of a, a really nice chronological and sequential order to the covering of the Poirot um, adaptations, novels, short stories, and. We'll come back to that, but it is thoroughly enjoyable. As Sophie, I should say, is your free-to-subscriber newsletter guides to the review of all of Agatha Christie's Poirot novels that you have as a PDF on your website.
3: Yes, that's true. If you if you um, go to the homepage of my website, sophiehanna.com, you can sign up at the bottom to join my author newsletter in which I regularly give away free goodies. But when you sign up to join the newsletter, you get... Automatically sent to you my review guide to all of Agatha's prior novels.
2: I particularly like the kind of the the grading that you use from top notch through excellent, solid to flawed, which still yeah. allows for crystal excellence, but maybe some chink of light in in kind of the variation of uh, of quality.
3: Yeah, and actually, I mean, I, as as we've agreed, I have no free time. I mean, I do actually have free time, but I use it for my swimming, which I'm also obsessed with. Um, but If I had even more free time than that, I would probably look again at those ratings and those reviews because I'm sure I'd want to add to them and rethink them. Because, for example, as you say, Chris, flawed in the case of Agatha Christie can actually be... I mean, to to use an example, Murder in Mesopotamia, uh, which is a Poirot novel set in, uh, well, Mesopotamia, unsurprisingly, but that is a perfect example, I think, of a Christie novel that is... I mean, there's one flaw in it that that is quite a significant flaw, and yet, in every single other respect, it's absolutely top-notch. So if I was re- redoing my review guide, I would definitely want to make some allowances for the books that are flawed and yet still top-notch. <laughs> it's
4: funny you should mention that one, Sophie, because that's the, the one title that I wrangled over the most when I was... Uh, writing about it in my book because for me if you've got one big flaw in a, a mysteries then that almost strikes the book out you know it means it doesn't work in the way that I want it to work and it's been really interesting since I wrote that how many people I've seen saying well of course that's a problem but I love it anyway so I've gone back and actually tweaked my thinking on that because I keep changing my mind myself. Yeah,
3: well, I think it, I mean, it's so interesting. So I can imagine that there could be a a novel that was excellent in every other way and had one significant flaw. And I can imagine thinking that the flaw did in fact ruin the whole novel. So for example, let's say there was a crime novel. I mean, actually there is an Agatha novel I can use as an example for this as well. Um, Murder is Easy, which is one of her standalone novels. Now, I think Murder is Easy is, just really brilliant in in so many ways. I absolutely loved um, reading it until about halfway through. But the significant flaw that I think it has is that it is quite obvious who the bad guy is. I mean, I never guess Agatha. She always outwits me. But with Murder is Easy, I was like, yeah, it is just too obvious. And so that affected my enjoyment of probably the second half of the book. And so for that instance, I would you know, awards some demerit points. However, with Murder in Mesopotamia, the whole experience of reading the book is so enjoyable and all the way through you're thinking, um, this is just amazing, this is one of the best, this is a, a, a Christie classic and the flaw is really right at the end, it's something you discover right at the end and it's t- it is, uh, you know, to do with the resolution and The reason I don't think it detracts from the excellence, this is so interesting, I've never actually thought this through before, but I think the reason is the flaw that I think is present is one to do with me personally finding something implausible. But whenever I find something implausible, if it's scientifically possible, then I always think, you know, this might be one of those instances where everybody thinks no way, but actually maybe it could happen.
4: Does do that make sense, Mark? This won't Yeah, be- yeah. I, I, and actually, it reminds me of um, a time that we were having a chat uh, at the festival in, in Torquay a year or two ago. And I remember you said to me that you can forgive one big sort of coincidence or one big sort of implausible element for for a mystery. As long as there's just sort of one, then that's okay because implausible things happen in real life. And I think about that a lot when I read mysteries now. I think, well, one, actually, maybe I'll let them get away with. And uh, certainly there is one in, in Mesopotamia.
3: Yeah, and the thing about it is, I mean, I'm always really careful to distinguish between implausible, which to me means it could not happen. Like, I like to... I like to believe in the possibility of anything that could, in fact, happen. So, um, well, like the Hitchcock film Vertigo, for example. Um, I'm just about to spoiler Vertigo, everybody. <laughs> so if you don't want it spoiled, wind on a bit in the, in the podcast recording. Um, but in Vertigo, you know, we're asked to believe that this guy meets a woman that he's already been in love with and thinks is dead, And he meets her wearing different clothes and with a different hair, color and style. And he doesn't know it's her. And people say that is a big flaw. It's really implausible. I find that totally plausible because I have myself been in situations, one in particular, I was swimming in the sea in Crete and swimming right next to me was the husband of my then literary agent, a very distinctive looking chap. And we swam next to each other thinking, doesn't that look like Giles? And doesn't that look like Sophie? But not not even considering that we were us, right? And then only later when I saw him with his wife, my former agent, did I kind of go, Oh wow, it is you. And like that's where that's why I believe in Vertigo, right? Because if you think you know someone is dead, then you're not just you're just not going to consider that you might meet them again. So I think in the case of murder in Mesopotamia, that flaw, I personally can't imagine that that could happen in real life but I can also sort of imagine someone saying well you know you say it can't happen but my friend Maureen and then telling me a story of how it in fact did happen so um but but you know the other thing is when I'm I mean Mark you probably like I do listen religiously to Catherine and Kemper's All About Agatha podcast and When I'm kind of mentally awarding my rankings and my marks to each Christie novel, the main overwhelming factor that I take into account is enjoyability of reading experience. And in Murder in Mesopotamia, the the, the reading experience is just amazing. And for me, it isn't undermined by that moment of hang on a minute at the
4: end. (laughs) I think a lot of it is also about how you're approaching the book because for me the great joy of reading Agatha Christie is I'm an active reader so I am trying to work out the mystery that is what is the most exciting thing for me and I it was only in the last few years that I've realised a lot of people don't read Agatha Christie like that that they read them to be just sort of taken along on the ride and see where we end up and I think if you're like me and you're looking more actively and really trying to work things out then the mystery is the, the central part of what the book is, and else is great and that is what makes it you know all-time classics and the greatest mystery novelist is that she can do everything really well. But the mystery is, is a really exciting thing. But for other people, you, you just get swept along by what Agatha Christie is telling you, and they aren't necessarily trying to work out every bit of the, the solution. So I think it's also about what your expectations are. I'm expecting a mystery to completely make sense and for me to believe in it. But for a lot of people, that, that's actually less important than whether they enjoyed it leading up to that point
3: yeah I that, that's really interesting because I, I agree with like I think I agree with you a lot, but there's one maybe element where I think differently. So I a hundred percent agree that the mystery and the mystery puzzle and the solution is absolutely key. that that for me is also the main thing. But I don't think I actively try and work it out as the book goes along, certainly not with Agatha because, I just sort of know that I never can and never have <laughs> you know, so, so I, I actually like I, I guess I sort of half try but not in a very active way because I know that Poirot or Miss Marple is going to tell me at the end but I also think what you said is really interesting because for mystery lovers like us you can actually break us down into smaller categories so some mystery lovers probably are like you and love the thought of like, I can try and solve this. This is like a puzzle for me. And that category of reader would probably think, well, hang on a minute. Murder in Mesopotamia doesn't play fair in that respect because there's no way I could guess that. But for me, and I am 100% a mystery prioritizer, you know, that is the, the main element for me. But for me, what I love about mysteries is just the frustration of the not knowing combined with a guarantee that I'll find out. So as long as I have that, oh, I'm desperate to know feeling, and then I do know at the end, I'm generally happy. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, another thing about Mesopotamia is that there is one respect in which the ending is brilliant and ingenious. So it's, you know, the, the how... The how of the murder is just stellar, and it's really the who of the murder that's a bit like you what.
4: also a lot of people just to take someone's bound to say it when they're listening to this but but mesopotamia also makes a lot more sense if you know about some of agatha christie's own experiences and i'm not going to ruin it now but it's not difficult to find out what the influence was on that implausible um sort of discovery towards the end of of the novel so some people read it and go oh well it does make sense if you know this and i feel like well it's not in the book it's not yeah. in the book. That's not playing fair, but I think that's the one, well one of the things in the book, in my book that it'll be interesting to find out whether people are sort of uh, you know lighting flaming torches uh, to to tell me how awful I am for saying that I think that's quite a big deal.
3: What? A big deal that uh, the, the 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 floor? Yes, yes. Oh, I don't think I don't think anyone will be cross about that. <laughs> I mean <laughs> might disagree you know what's really interesting as well is um i remember talking to you once about sad cyprus Mm -hmm. and there's a plot a little plot flaw in that isn't there we i won't say what it is but it's it's quite a well-known and well-acknowledged one and i think murder in mesopotamia is in that exact same category as sad cyprus in the sense that just as you said when we discussed it, Mark, that Sad Cypress's plot flaw could have been totally dealt with by the addition of one line. I think that murder in Mesopotamia, the, the aspect that people find implausible, the reason people do find it implausible is because Agatha didn't include any details that she might have included that would have made it more plausible. Now, I can think of three or four things that the murderer could have done um to him or herself right changes the murderer could have made to him or herself that would have made that more easy to believe do you know what mm. get do you get what i'm talking yes, about yes
4: definitely yes yes
3: and there was none. Like there was nothing along those lines. Uh, anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about, please, please, <laughs> murder in Mesopotamia and sad Cyprus, And then you can email us, and we'll give you the full lowdown.
2: Hey, it's fantastic. It, it's it's like sort of uh, listening into a masterclass. And I think we've covered about sort of so many of the kind of really important. Kind of the the reasons, really, why Christie and Poirot, in particular, that you know, one hundred years since the mysterious affair at Styles was published, that you know, here we are joined by the internet and debating in vast detail immediately <laughs> plot flaws in one novel. That you know, <laughs> I think we just I think case closed, as as Christie would say. You know, this is why uh, Poirot and Christie is still such a powerful has such a powerful hold on the reader's imagination.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean. It, yeah, because this is something that happens not only between Mark and uh, and me, but you know, the whole sort of Christy, what what we call the super fan community. When we get together, very very soon, we are talking in you know about the fine detail, you know this plot point, and if this line had been added here, and if this thing had been moved to there. We all know the books so well, and we're so obsessed with them that it get, it gets very sort of particular very quickly
2: fantastic oh i just want to sort of wind back to that sort of you know here we are kind of um talking for noirich which is a gathering of kind of crime fiction readers um this year from around the world people kind of subscribing and signing up for our our kind of podcasts and for our live and as live q a's and sessions christy has a real hold in the crime reader community you know whether there are super fans as you say that there is a community a huge global community of super fans or whether they are people who just pick up a Christie now and then everyone will have an opinion on Christie but also the fact that it it does now you know we are now a hundred years since the publication of the Mysterious Affair at Styles, and Poirot himself as a character is is kind of a hundred years old and we're sort of together at this point in time celebrating that and I just wondered if I could perhaps just sort of ask you first of all Sophie um about your sort of first encounter with Poirot and what gripped you about him as a character and your say something a little bit about your experience of kind of growing the Poirot that you have created in the last four books
3: Well, so my first experience of Poirot, and I should say that it wasn't my first experience of Christie, because my first Christie that I read was The Body in the Library, and I read that when I was 12, Um, and then after that I don't remember what order I read the books in, I just remember reading them avidly until I'd read them all, Um, but I vividly remember my first encounter with Poirot um, as, well, when I... Think about you know what what's my first memory of Poirot. What I remember is getting to the part in Murder on the Orient Express. Now I don't even remember if Murder on the Orient Express was the first Poirot I read. It might not have been, and if it isn't, if it wasn't, then I don't actually remember my first encounter with Poirot. But I'm pretty sure it was. And the the bit that I can still remember so vividly, even now. Is when he reveals the solution at the end, I literally felt as though the whole inside of my brain had been like whipped out, whizzed around, and put back in a completely different configuration. It was like it was like a kind of magic feeling. It was like suddenly you think you think there are all these possibilities and only these possibilities, and suddenly you see in the most brilliant way that something else that was eminently possible all along was in fact the case, and you just didn't think about it, but you could have done. And it's just, for me, that was my first memory of, and probably my first experience of that perfect resolution of mystery feeling that every crime reader is seeking. You know, just as sort of gamblers seek that hit of winning a million dollars at Blackjack or Black Pudding or whatever it's called, and just as, you know, heroin addicts want that hit of heroin. Crime fiction addicts, or at least ones like me and Mark who are mystery lovers, that's what we want. We want that moment of revelation to kind of just give us that parallax view effect where everything is suddenly turned around and we see something that we could have seen all along. And it's just a kind of rush of pure pleasure and thinking like, oh, yeah, that thing was also possible, but I just didn't see it. And now, of course, it's not only possible, but it had to be that way. It's so satisfying, that feeling. And every mystery fiction lover will know exactly what I mean, but people who don't like mysteries will be like, what's she on about? (laughs) But that, that was my first memory of like, oh, wow, Poirot has worked this out. And of course it's true because it's the only thing that can possibly be true. And from that moment onwards, I was a devoted worshipper
2: of Poirot. Fantastic. I've heard it described as like the moment when you sort of look at um, sort of Rebus images and you suddenly see that kind of, you know, whether it's the, the rabbit or the top hat or the duck, and suddenly you get to see reality in a different way.
3: Exactly. That is exactly what it's
2: like. Fantastic. And in terms of um, kind of your own experience of kind of, Uh, writing of creating Poirot because of course Christie created the character but you've had this incredible kind of opportunity and also a heavy sort of responsibility of kind of of lifting Poirot out of the Christie context and and taking him on a a new set of, of mysteries how has that been over recent years for you?
3: It's been amazing. Um, But, you know, people often say to me, have I changed him? Have I added anything? And I've always thought all along that I didn't want to do that. Um, He is Agatha Christie's Poirot. He is also, in a very significant way, the Poirot of all the readers who love him. I mean, including me, actually. (laughs) Like In a way, I don't want to change Poirot as a writer. I want to read about the same Poirot as a reader because I'm still the Poirot fan as much as I'm the person who writes Poirot novels. So I've always seen my job as being writing as best I can about Agatha Christie's Poirot, and my job isn't to change him. My job is to kind of find him and show him to the people who want to see him, you know? Now, obviously, because I'm not Agatha Christie, it's inevitable that my conception of him is going to be different from hers, and therefore probably my The narrator of my Poirot novels, Inspector Catchpool, his conception of Poirot is going to be different from Christie's or from Hastings's interpretation. So there are going to be differences, but I'm always conscious that I am writing about Agatha's Poirot and I really would not like to suddenly bring in New bits of him that she didn't create.
2: Mm-hmm. I think um, it's, it's a really interesting point, isn't it, Mark, when we talk about the psychology and expectations of the reader and, and the audience that uh, kind of Christie created with her works, and particularly around the major characters of Poirot and Marple to, to some extent. What's been your experience as an academic in writing about Poirot and confronting that shared set of expectations from readers?
4: Well, I think that, that one of the really interesting things about Poirot is that actually he doesn't necessarily have the fixed set of expectations in terms of the stories in that, that you might believe. Because uh, while lots of us will think of Poirot and things like Merge on the Orient Express and uh, you know Parallel End House, what we actually have are quite a lot of Poirot stories that are unusual in some way. Quite a lot of the short stories are, are much slighter and actually are much better in terms of working out who. Poirot as a character is. But also, I, I mean, Sophie's absolutely right, and I think she's spot on with her characterisation of, of Poirot in her books. I think that's an absolute massive strength of them, and it really helps them to, to work so well. Um, but I, I, the idea, if, if Sophie were to do to her Poirot what Agatha Christie did to, to the original, so to speak, um, I think people would be appalled if Sophie put him in something like the Big Four and had him <laughs> sort of poison darts and blowing up mountains full of spies. And all sorts of things. So actually, we, we've sort of come to a mutual agreement amongst sort of fans and watchers as to who Poirot is, while sort of dispensing with actually quite a lot of what he does.
3: Yeah, that, that's actually such a good point, right? So not only, not only the Big Four, because of its kind of very different character from what we think of as a typical paranormal, but also Many other of Agatha's Poirot novels are not in that typical mould either, and in particular ones like, for example, um, *Cat Among the Pigeons*, where Poirot really only appears sort of almost at the end. Really, I mean, he's he's. <laughs> I think that's the Poirot novel that features least Poirot. Um, but then there's also, I think, one of Agatha's best novels after *The Funeral*, which Poirot is very much in. But he's not in the first half, which I personally think is absolutely fine. I actually think all of those books, The Big Four, After the Funeral and um, Cat Among the Pigeons, work well in their own way. But Mark is absolutely right that, well, I'm not going to say I couldn't, because obviously we can all do exactly what we want if we're prepared to (laughs) accept the consequences. But I, I have kind of ruled out as an option for myself writing any Poirot novel in which Poirot is, kind of not present throughout. So even if we take the sort of least extreme case of Poirot absence, which is after the funeral, where he's definitely there for the whole of the second half and not for the first half, I'm not sure I would I would allow myself to do that. And I think it's really interesting, actually. So the the three-act... Not three-act tragedy. Three-act tragedy, though, is a brilliant Poirot novel that you should all read, a very underestimated one. So I'll just say that. Um, Cat Among the Pigeons, I don't think I would ever choose to do. I would think there's no point me writing Poirot novels if I'm trying to keep Poirot out of them. (laughs) So I just wouldn't want to do that. But After the Funeral is a good example, because now, where I am now, if, if the next idea I had for a Poirot novel was one that involved Poirot not being in it for the first half, I would just rule that out straight away. Now, what I wonder is, if I'd written... 20 Poirot novels and was I mean who knows how many I'm going to write maybe I'm not going to write anymore but but if I if I'd written 20 and was planning my 21st it's entirely possible that I'd think do you know what I've done what we all think of as traditional Poirot template for 20 books now it's time for something like I might think that but certainly at the moment I definitely feel that um, I want Poirot to be in all of yeah. the Poirot novels that I wrote
2: from start and to And it date. does raise a really interesting question, Mark, doesn't it, about Christie's own experience of living with and writing Poirot. She wasn't necessarily interested in consistency, perhaps, but she also, she, you know, perhaps she, I don't know if this is a fair characterization, but sometimes there was an indication that she felt she was performing Poirot for her readers and she kind of went up and down with Poirot as a character.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, her books didn't come about, or her her use of horror didn't come about, because she thought, "Oh, I have this fantastic character in mind that I want to write mysteries." For. It was a matter of expediency, you know, it just sort of needed a detective character. She was influenced by Belgian refugees uh, that she'd uh, seen near to her home. Uh, and, and that was it. And it seemed to, to make sense. She'd thought about other ideas such as uh, a schoolboy investigator and so on. And just Poirot seemed to be the best fit. Certainly early on, uh, Poirot was very much Sherlock Holmes uh, and, and Hastings is our Watson. They're, they're very close sort of parallels. Lots of sort of inspecting ash in fire grates and those sort of small more clues that he doesn't do so much later on, but she's a bit fed up with him by the end of the 1920s, at least because of his uh, his age uh, and because I think she wanted to do more things. I suspect that a lot of this is tied in with her own personal problems at the end of the 1920s, just when she was having to write this more commercial stuff uh, because she was in her new contract with with Collins and so on. Uh, and she felt much more positively about him later on, and I think what the, the difference is, is that once she had established how well she could write, uh, and how successfully she could write for um, other characters who weren't Poirot, through things like, obviously, Miss Marple, but also her standalone mysteries, such as *And Then There Were None, and the mousetrap on stage, and all of this stuff, I think that then she, she sort of seemed to resent him less. And actually, I don't think she ever hated him quite as much as people say. People selectively quote from her, but she almost always, when she's dismissive of him, says, oh, but actually he's okay really you know it's not that there was ever the, the real sort of antipathy that, that you might expect and actually by the 50s um, she is being asked to take Poirot out of, of one or two stories because these stock detectives as her, her American agent called them were no longer fashionable and that people wanted something new so she wasn't tied to him for the whole of her career but early on I think she felt very restricted and that sort of cast a bit of a shadow. It's
2: fascinating that the kind of he and she together as his creator had such a kind of extensive kind of lifespan, if you like, that they saw the rise and fall of those fashions in crime fiction and publishing you know, on both sides of the Atlantic and across the world.
4: Yeah, well, I think also uh, it's not just Poirot, I think, because Poirot doesn't really age (laughs) from 1916 all the way up to the 1970s. uh, uh, But she does allow Tommy and Tuppence to age, who we initially see at the beginning of the 1920s. And by the time we see them for her final novel, uh, Post and Fate, in the 70s, they have been allowed to age. Uh, So uh, Poirot was distinct from her other characters. You know, he was somebody who really seemed to to exist outside of, of the rest of the world,
2: Absolutely. Uh, And and I think that also, uh, I wonder if the kind of the wide, the the fact that Poirot appears in novels, in stories, uh, and on the radio, and then has been adapted in so many ways, gives him a, a very different tenor to many of the other characters that Christie created and what that does, both to his contemporary reception, but also, Sophie, to your sort of working with him as a character as well.
4: Yeah, definitely. You can pick your own Poirot if you like. You know, you can say which sort of adaptations are, are to your taste. Uh, I mean, there are some that, that other people adore that don't really work for me, but that doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter whether I personally like them or not, and and vice versa. There's some that I think work really well that other people perhaps don't even consider very much. But, but Poirot as a character in the books uh, and as a character uh, on film and TV is hugely variable because just as, as Sophie and I were saying before, you can pick your element that the Poirot in the Big Four is a bit of an adventurer, a bit of an action figure, almost uh, very different to the Poirot who we get in, in a lot of the later books, in particular, where he's sort of uh, very much at a distance mm. observing. Yeah, and I
3: mean, that's, a, that's a, a sort of Poirot in the Big Four. It's kind of so different from some of the other versions we've met, and I'm I'm just talking about the books now because uh, that's that's you know. However much I adore some of the on-screen Poiros, my main source of of Poiroishness is from the books, uh, and I mean Agatha's yeah. books, not my books. But um, the Big Four is kind of an extreme example of him behaving differently. But the brilliant thing is, well, two things. One is there are other ways, more subtle ways, but still very definite ways where he's different. So something that I'm always surprised by is that there's so little comment about the fact that in the murder of Roger Ackroyd and Mark can correct me on the details, but he where at the beginning of that book, he is, he has got himself a place in the country and his plan is to grow. Is it Marrows or Marrows right now? The Poirot in many other books and probably even in several chapters of even that book, like there's just no like there's a part of me that thinks, come on. Poirot is not going to try and start growing marrows, right? Poirot is someone who's going to order his marrows from Harrods and expect other people. So, like, but the thing is, I don't think that's a problem. I think it's actually brilliant, and I think Agatha does this in a really genius way. She changes Poirot and various attributes and opinions and behavioural tendencies of his whenever the hell she wants to. She will just go, you know, Poirot's doing this now, (laughs) don't complain this is what poirot's now doing this is what he's now thinking and he but what's brilliant is when he you know so one minute he's sitting in a chair saying mon ami you don't need to lift a finger or move an inch to solve the mystery you just need to sit and think other times he's dashing off to other countries to get little bits of information that he could easily get without dashing off so what's so good about it is that however he's behaving his essential poirotishness his essence of poirot Is still very much there. And so the effect that the readers get is we see someone who is always recognizable as our Poirot that we know and love, and he behaves inconsistently, just like every real human being. So I I just think it, you know, I don't know whether Agatha did any of that deliberately, but when I suddenly encounter him chasing international espionage magnates or growing marrows, I don't kind of think, no, no, this is all wrong, it doesn't work. I think, oh, yeah. This is still Poirot. People are inconsistent. One minute they say they never do X, the next minute they're doing X. So I just think it worked perfectly.
2: How did you sort of, um, what, what did you come away with, Mark, after your sort of deep immersion in, in the Poirot world and thinking about that notion of a Poirot essence and how he can be inconsistent but still absolutely recognisable across the decades?
4: Yeah, well, I think that one thing that really came uh, to the fore when I was looking through everything to, to put this book together was how often how much he reflected how Agatha Christie herself was thinking uh, or was feeling at particular times. So it's interesting that by the 1960s, uh, which is a time when um, Agatha Christie herself was being a bit more nostalgic, she was really looking back to the past, she was rereading some of her own work and stuff. Suddenly, uh, Poirot is interested in crime fiction and he's putting his own sort of library together uh, and he's uh, being much more sort of detached from the real world and feeling like the changes in the world are perhaps not so much for him. So I I found that really interesting how much what we can gather about Agatha Christie herself from things like her interviews, not that she did that many, uh, and her autobiography really uh, ends up being reflected in what we see of Poirot. Obviously, Ariadne Oliver, uh, the sort of uh, writer, um, friend occasionally of, of Poirot, is Rather more explicitly, a sort of uh, analogue for I guess Christie in some ways, but not in others. Um, uh, but actually, Poirot's does exactly the same. You know, Poirot's opinions on things, little asides, even. No, every time I read uh, an Agatha Christie book from uh, the sort of 40s later, you will be very lucky if you get through one that doesn't mention tax <laughs> at some point. Uh, because it's always, uh, there's a little bit in, in her mind that's going to come through the fore, And often it's through Poirot, but, but not necessarily always. But yeah, definitely there's this sort of mirroring of what Poirot is doing and what Agatha Christie is interested in, which, which I found really um, uh, interesting. It, it must true. be an
2: incredibly sort of tempting um, opportunity to read the author through the character and vice versa, but in the knowledge that it's just not a, a simple translation experience and it's also a very dangerous temptation.
1: It
4: is, and, and actually it's one of my biggest frustrations, and I complained about this a lot, I was complaining about this the other day actually, uh, it is it's the number of people who who seems to feel that Agatha Christie could only write about her own experiences, and that if she was writing about a particular character, a particular person, a particular situation someone was in, then they would sort of dig through her biography and find what that seemed to be reflecting, and I think that thus Such a disservice to how good she was, and that actually she doesn't need to have lived an experience or or lived uh, uh, with a a particular person to understand what that that might be like. She was a fantastic writer, but. Her real strength was really about human nature and understanding what people are like, and and to think that it's all a reflection of her own life is, is, I think, um, a problematic.
2: Yeah, yeah, I I think that, that you know we can't, you know, particularly coming from the academic. Um, side of the discourse it's very difficult to overlook uh, degrees of her opinion and characterization of characters that really clash on jar with us today as well and not reading that again directly into her own autobiography or into her own social situation but how do you how do you kind of negotiate that kind of problem uh, complex in, in your analysis of her work
4: well i think the important thing is is not to um assume uh, uh, that Everything I, I feel is is the truth. Yeah. What you can do is interpret it and say this is a possibility and that this this may be an influence. Um, and so for me, it's really important not to do the sort of putting myself into the mind of Agatha Christie and working out how she was feeling. That would be a, a massive disservice as well as being completely impossible. So for me, I negotiate it in a way of presenting the possibilities and allowing the reader themselves to, to work out whether they believe this is a genuine connection, for example, or whether they think that perhaps something is, is overstated or, or not relevant.
2: Mm. And when you come across the, the elements of her stories, particularly relating, I, I, I think, to uh, the British colonial legacy, um, how, does, how does that read to you now as an academic reader of Christie as well as a fan of Christie?
4: always context and, and i think that one of the things with agatha christie is that she is one of very very few writers of the era who are, are still widely read now and widely read by people who perhaps don't read a lot of uh, other authors of, of the time and so i think everything that, that might be reflecting you know um, the way that people worked and spoke and and reacted at the time uh, absolutely has to be considered in that particular context. There's 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 no maliciousness uh, in, in Agatha Christie. You know there are things that don't read well now, but um, a, a lot of that is really got to be seen in in the particular context. I, and I think there will be lots of discussions about this sort of thing in the future, and um, uh, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. But actually, the vast majority of of Agatha Christie is is a about people that you could pick up and you could put anywhere you know I'm always saying that you could put and then there were none on the moon uh, and it would absolutely work in the the same way so uh, a lot of it is about character a lot of it is about how they interact with each other and uh, the sort of wider context can actually be important, but also you can alter them and they still work as, as books.
2: The absolute sort of openness to uh, to kind of identification with those characters and the motivations is so striking, I think, in Christie's work. And perhaps for me, it feels like one of the reasons why her work is so powerful, you know, still 100 years after Poirot arrived. Do you feel that sort of openness, Sophie, when you were presented with the challenge, if you like, and the opportunity of taking Poirot onwards, was that that psychological acuity and this space and the stage that Christie created, was that a a major attraction for you?
3: Yeah, I mean, I've always thought, I mean, it's, it's especially noticeable when you read other Golden Age writers, which I occasionally do, Agatha's books are obviously written when they were written but they're not dated in any way like it, it's kind of so hard to explain I read a, a Nio Marsh book recently which was brilliant but it kind of came it, it, it felt as old as like I don't know Wuthering Heights or Mrs Gaskell in a way it was like this is a book from a whole other era even though it was brilliant with Agatha Christie's books they are obviously of their time but they feel so fresh and relevant, and I think it's several things. I think it's the fact that the story and the characters, like plot and character, are so so much the main event in Agatha Christie. So the psychological um, insights and the wisdom about human nature and the analysis of human relationships and how they work and the fact that you know Agatha's mainly interested in all the things that still preoccupy human beings now like love hate jealousy anger you know all those sort of primal human emotions so it really doesn't feel in any way dated um and yes obviously things are the sort of accoutrements are of their time but not in a way it's almost like her books have this feeling of standing outside of time in a way they just sort of feel like archetypal brilliant templates um and I can't I can't really sort of justify or explain that anymore but um but yeah so that's that you know makes me think when I first agreed to write a new prior novel I discussed with with the Christie family you know what they asked me, in fact, did I want to update it to the present day? And I said, definitely not, because I already was thinking that I wanted to write sort of Poirot in his classic period. But actually, part of the reason that it wouldn't work for me to have Poirot in the present day is that he's kind of in all the times. You know, even if you read about him doing his fang in the 1930s, he's still kind of here now, and he he just seems to, in a way, transcend his setting even though you do get a strong sense from agatha's books of the time period and of you know all the all the sort of conventions of the day but at the same time they seem to stand outside time and be these kind of eternally true stories
2: I wonder if at this point it would be good for you, if I could ask you, Sophie, to tell us a little bit about the time, the context and the placing of the killings at Kingfisher Hill and where Poirot finds himself at the start of this novel and this adventure.
3: Yes, well, it's 1931. Now, I should say that all of my Poirot novels, all four of them so far, have been set between 1928 and 1932. That was for a very deliberate reason. Uh, when we were deciding where my Poirot novels were going to be set, we realised that there were four years uh, between The Mystery of the Blue Train in 28 and Peril at End House in 1932, Agatha didn't write or publish any Poirot novels, so that just felt like a good slot for us to slot into. Um, So my first Poirot novel, The Monogram Murders, was, was set in 1929, then Closed Casket, and I think The Mystery of Three-Quarters were set in 1930. And The Killings at Kingfisher Hill is 1931. So Poirot and Catchpool, who is his sidekick in all of my novels about him, they are setting off from London on a luxury passenger coach to the Kingfisher Hill estate in the English home counties countryside. Kingfisher Hill Estate is a sort of gated country park estate um, full of second homes belonging to basically London businessmen or general assorted rich people, royalty and aristocracy. Um, So it's a very exclusive gated country estate and it's actually based on a real one called um, St. George's Hill, which I think is in Surrey. Anyway... Um, so they're on their way there. The reason they're on their way there is that they've been summoned by a man called Richard Devonport who lives there. Richard's fiancée, Helen, is about to be hanged for the murder of Richard's brother, Frank. And Richard is utterly convinced that Helen is innocent and so wants Poirot to come and sort it out. He has imposed a condition upon Poirot, which is that when Poirot arrives at the house with catch he's not allowed to talk about any of this. (laughs) He's not allowed to tell any members of the family why he's really there. So he needs a cover story and he invents a very ingenious one. But he's not allowed to mention Frank. He's not allowed to mention Helen. He's not allowed to mention murder. He's not allowed to mention imminent executions. Richard basically says to him, the whole family is pretending that nothing has happened. Nothing is happening. Frank never existed. Now, Catchpool immediately says, Poirot, this is freaking weird he doesn't put it like that (laughs) well he puts it more catch but that's his basic gist like like wtf what we can't mention that we're there to look into the and um poirot takes this opportunity to say every family has its bonkers conventions that other families and other people think is mad but when you're in that family and those are the unwritten rules you follow those rules which is a theme from Agatha Christie. She mm. looks at that very thing in great detail in um, Appointment with Death, which is another of her great Poirot novels. Anyway, so off Poirot and Catchpool are going to Kingfisher Hill, and as almost as soon as this luxury coach takes off, I mean, sets off, it's not a plane, it's a coach, as soon as it sets off, a woman who Catchpool has noticed because she's been looking very frightened and upset uh, even before they boarded the coach. Ten minutes into the journey, she leaps up out of her seat and says, Stop the coach. I cannot sit in this seat any longer. If I do, someone will murder me. And Poirot sort of talks to her and tries to work out what's going on. And it turns out that a few weeks earlier, a stranger accosted her on the street and warned her that if she sat in a particular seat, and he described where the seat was, seven rows back in a coach on the right-hand side next to the aisle, he described that seat, and he says, if she sits in that seat on a coach, she's going to be murdered. And Poirot is completely, I mean, he's fascinated, but his immediate question is, well, in that case, why did you sit in that seat? So it's all very murky and mysterious, but that's the mystery they encounter, on their way to kingfisher hill then when they get to kingfisher hill to secretly investigate the murder of frank they find that there is another murder there is a dead body in the house nobody knows who it is but a note that has been left next to the body links it very firmly to the woman they met on the coach and so then they have to work out who killed frank who killed this other body who is the other body and how can these things be connected
2: Fantastic. What a setup. I mean, my my reaction as a kind of a a Christie fan and also a fan of your continuation novels was that it felt to me almost like this was the most focused Poirot that you've written yet insofar as you do not, the reader does not draw breath before the mystery is kind of set. The, 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 The traps of the mystery are kind of unleashed within the first page in terms of setting the scene and it felt very, very focused. So, Mark, can I ask you for your, obviously no spoilers, but your reaction as a Christie reader and a Poirot fan when you when you read this
4: one? Uh, yeah, well, I, I really enjoyed it, as the first thing to say, that I absolutely, uh, I, I thought it was fantastic. And, and I, I, I said when I was reading it at the time that actually I felt that it worked particularly well if you read a couple of chapters a day, because there's something almost like of a serial nature about it that harkens back to some of her earlier stuff, where there is another sort of mystery or excitement or, or a slightly change in the situation that we weren't expecting. We know we might learn something that we, we weren't expecting to, to know about. So um, I, I think, once again, the, the characterization of Poirot is so spot on on these. I, I think that, that the, the characterization is so, so strong. And what I think is really interesting is, uh, and it is difficult to talk about it without spoilers, but is that after I'd read it, I sent Sophie a message to say, oh, it really reminded me of, I don't even know how to say what it is, but it reminded me of a particular character in a famous... Um, Uh, Agatha Christie book and Sophie sort of replied to go oh oh I hadn't really thought about that and then I think went away and had a little think about it so I think a lot perhaps seeps into Sophie's subconscious when she's writing these that she isn't necessarily thinking oh I'm going to take this from this novel I'm going to take this idea from that And, and actually each novel that she has written, for me, feels really different. And, and I think that the way that she's approached them, just in the way that Agatha Christie approached them in, in very different ways, there are some of them are, are very psychologically focused. Um, most of them have got a, a good dose of psychology in them as well. But often they negotiate the mystery in different ways. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I thought it was really, really strong. And as a Poirot book, absolutely works. I I can believe what Poirot was doing. I do remember Sophie us discussing years and years ago about what mode of transport we could imagine Poirot on that he hasn't already been on. And you weren't sure about the coach then but you came around to it. it seems. I
3: did. I did. And interestingly I have already I can't remember who it was but somebody said I love the book. I'm not convinced Poirot would ever get on a coach. I can't see Poirot travelling by coach. Now actually Mark is quite right that I did want to, you know, one of the things Agatha does brilliantly is have Poirot solving mysteries on modes of transport. So he solved mysteries on a plane, he solved mysteries on a train, a boat. So I did want to sort of think, are there any other modes of transport? And luxury passenger coach travel was a really big thing
4: at that point in time. He and has been on a bus. He, he was on a bus in, in Double Sin, the short story. So so it's not completely... He wasn't a, a very keen passenger, but he has been on one before. Yeah, well, so exactly. So
3: I thought, again, you know, this is well within my definition of plausibility. And also, um, I think the person who said he'd never travel by coach, what they maybe had not taken into account was that the coach... Company is called the Kingfisher Coach Company. It's owned and run by somebody who lives at Kingfisher Hill. So, some of the sort of exclusivity and panache that people mentally attach to Kingfisher Mm. Hill as a gated estate also rubs off on the coach company unjustifiably as it turns out because the coach is not that great which is one of the things Poirot notices on the journey but certainly when he booked his ticket he absolutely thought that he was going to be getting an exclusively aristocratic coach travel experience
2: and, th- and that is a real sort of, uh, I particularly enjoy the fact that you're confronted with uh, an immediate kind of mysterious setup uh, in that opening section on the coach, but also then Sophie reveals that that is not the only or in past possibly the main mystery that we are here to look at as well. It was a very powerful sense of almost walking around a chessboard and seeing the setup of the board from different angles throughout the process of the story.
3: Yeah, yeah. And in fact, I think by the end of the first chapter, Catchpool is saying to Poirot, like, how is this possible? We're traveling to Kingfisher Hill because we're going to investigate a murder. But during the coach journey, two, I mean, I've only told you about one of them, but two, in, in fact, other things happen to do with two other possible murders. And Catchpool draws attention to this and says, Poirot, come on, what are the odds? Here we are going to investigate this murder and during our coach trip there, we encounter two possible other murders. That seems very unlikely <laughs> you know, because there is something weird about what's going on. Now, um, what I love to do, and I do this in my contemporary crime novels as well, is I like to use the notion of coincidence in an interesting way. Because people often say, even though coincidences happen in life, you can't have them in crime fiction. I don't actually agree with that. I think you can sometimes, as long as the solution isn't relying on a coincidence. But what I think you can absolutely do to sort of bolster and ratchet up the tension of the mystery is to have something that looks like, on the surface, it looks like an implausible coincidence. But the clue to the reader is like, if you know the mystery genre, you will know. But there's no coincidence here. Everything is going to turn out to be connected, but you can't see how yet. And that's what that's what hooks you in. So I love it in any mystery novel, and Agatha does it all the time, when the detective or the protagonist says, how can this be possible and this be possible at the same time? It just cannot be. And you get that massive, um, enjoyable excitement of thinking, "Oh, but it is," and I don't, I don't know how, but I'm going to find out. So that was very much a deliberate construction. And
2: it's one of the most powerful elements of the genre. I feel that it creates that complicity, that compact between the reader and the writer, in and kind of, kind of forging that understanding that these things can't be possible. But you know, the writer knows, and you know as the reader that they must be possible, and somehow that there will be a resolution.
3: Yeah. And I mean, Agatha does that brilliantly in Sleeping Murder, one of her Miss Marple novels. Um, There's a woman moves into a new house uh, that she, as far as she knows, is completely new. She's never lived in that house before. And yet she starts remembering or thinking she remembers things about the house. And when she checks it out, those details are all true of this house she's living in that she has no way of knowing. How did she know that in this cupboard there would be this wallpaper, et cetera, et cetera? And that was in fact, you know, that that's as vivid a memory for me as, as, as the denouement of uh, Orient Express. When I first read Sleeping Murder, I was like, oh, this is impossible, and yet here it is happening, which means it must be possible. And because I can't imagine any way that it could be, that's what makes it so exciting. We
2: don't have a, an enormous amount of time left because the whole hour's gone very quickly, but I can't not ask. Uh, one of the most important kind of ways that Christie in the Poirot novels obviously brings that uh, challenge to the surface of the impossibil- the seeming impossibility of things is through Hastings and perhaps through Jap as well, but you have Catchpool. Um, and Christie was occasionally, I think, and you can correct me absolutely, Mark, was sometimes a little bit dismissive of Hastings and she might have called him Dim Occasionally and exasperating. I never get that sense with that you feel that about Catchpool. I feel very fond of Catchpool already, Sophie. How do you feel about him?
3: <laughs> I love Catchpool. I mean, I, I, just, I just adore him. Um, and I deliberately created him to be different from Hastings because Hastings is just perfect and he's brilliant. And, you know, I certainly didn't want to do another version of Hastings because Hastings is the only Hastings. But what I did want to do was give Poirot a sidekick who was quite clever, was quite capable, and is a good detective, but just not as good as Poirot. And that I thought would enable them to have a kind of teacher and pupil relationship almost. And so in The Monogram Murders, my first Poirot novel, Catchpool is in a fairly bad way because he's very insecure about the fact that, you know, he's supposed to be the. The police inspector, and yet Poirot's so brilliant, and he knows he wouldn't stand a chance of solving this case without Poirot. In Closed Casket, he's kind of a bit better, but he's still a bit grumpy about how brilliant Poirot is in comparison to him. But in The Mystery of Three Quarters, and particularly the killings at Kingfisher Hill, Catchpool has just sort of relaxed into the role of working with Poirot, and he knows because he's not making a problem out of the fact that Poirot's better than him, like he's not making it mean he's not good. He's just thinking, I'm doing great. Poirot happens to be a genius, and it's like it's not a threat to him anymore. And so, what's actually happening is he's kind of relaxing and just being a, a quite helpful helper to Poirot. Um, I think in um, I think in the mystery of three quarters, what I always try and do is have catchpool contributing something crucial to the solving of the mystery. Poirot is always the one who does all the brilliant working out of everything but in all four of the books Catchpool's contribution is really significant and so my idea was that Catchpool will will change if there are more books Catchpool will become better and better as a detective himself and really learn from Poirot Uh, because I think I guess what I thought when I read all the books with Hastings in was like Hastings really never makes any (laughs) progress direction of becoming a better detective and I I kind of thought well if I got to work with Poirot for case after case I would actually make it my mission to like make notes on everything he said and learn from him and try and deliberately see how close I could get to his level of genius and uh, Catchpool has not yet had this idea but I think he might at some point think okay I'm working with this guy I've got to stage one which is just accepting our respective roles but what if I could actually be nearly as good as him, if not as good? And I think if I do write more Poirot novels, Catchpool might start to have ambitions in that direction.
2: Fantastic! I also love the way that uh, Catchpool kind of his role mimics that of of Christie's. He becomes the writer of the narrative in lots of ways as a technical device in your novels, and there's there's a sort of um, there's a sense that you know Christie is the writer Poirot is is the master the readers are the students uh, almost if particularly if they're mystery readers like you both and love to perhaps differently um in each of your cases but you like to read with Christie and either guess or be shocked appalled amused and excited by the revelations that she provides um Mark I just wanted to sort of finish with a question to you really and thinking about the the development uh, or the legacy, perhaps more accurately, of Christie's Poirot. And kind of you've you've got this amazing global view through the work that you've provided uh, in your most recent book. And I just wondered what you came away with um, as your most vivid impressions through your study of Christie and her work on Poirot.
4: Well, I think that the the thing that really comes to mind is that by the time I was, when I was writing the book and I was getting to the period just after she died in 1976, uh, and it soon becomes clear that that Poirot is not going to be hindered by the death of his creator, uh, and that's absolutely true. And although actually he was protected for quite a long time, it's not to say he's not protected now, but really was kept away from you know lots of uh, adaptations and stuff for a few years. Uh, actually, Poirot is is now bigger than anything, and actually in lots of ways is separate to Agatha Christie, which I find quite interesting. That Poirot, as a if you want to say brand, to use twenty first century terms, is quite different in some ways to the Agatha Christie one. That you can play with Poirot. And put them in different ways. And as we've seen with, you know, international adaptations, there's a, a Japanese Murder Roger Ackroyd and Murder on the Orient Express. They've got their own version of a Poirot-like character, who's much sort of younger and much more sort of uh, humorous. But absolutely, definitely Poirot. You know, he's got the moustache. Uh, he's he plays that role. We can see that this is is a new interpretation of Poirot. And I think it'll be really interesting to see how that continues over the years. We've seen. Sherlock Holmes, for various reasons, has had a head start on Poirot in terms of working out what you do with this character after the creator has died. And um, it'll be interesting to see Poirot in sort of 20 years, whether we get a sort of Sherlock type reinvention because there isn't just one Poirot and there never was but definitely once you know Agatha Christie died you can't just have one Poirot and say well that's who he is you've got to have different elements of him seen in different versions of the character and I find that really exciting that you can actually say this is the Poirot I love they're all Poirot but you Mm -hmm. can have a type and a sort of a depiction I guess that you particularly like.
2: I absolutely love the image of sort of Christie creating Poirot and then sort of setting him off into the world. And now he's sort exactly. of yes. and connected and proliferating around yes. the world in different forms. Can't
4: stop him. There's no killing Poirot, I'm afraid.
2: Yeah, and that's very Poirot. It's very on brand Poirot. He will not be stopped. <laughs> Thank you both so much. It's been really fantastic to talk to you today for uh, Noirich 2020. I really wish it could have been in person and in front of a live audience. um, And I hope it will be again next year and that we get a chance to welcome you back to work with us. But it's been really uh, an absolute pleasure to talk to you both. And I can't recommend both books highly enough. And so pre-order Mark's book immediately. And you can order and buy Sophie's book immediately. I just want to thank you both really for all of us for the Noirich attendees.
4: Thank you. Thanks,
3: Chris. It's been really good fun. It's
2: been lovely. And now, Sophie, you can go back to one of your other time-consuming activities on the on the agenda now. Thanks. It's uh, really appreciated uh, sparing the time for us both today. I know that both of you are busy and that it's not an easy time in academia either. So it's great that you've made the time for us, Mark.
4: No problem. It's been a complete pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. And thanks to Sophie, Mark and Hercule himself. Norwich is a partnership between the National Centre for Writing and the University of East Anglia. We'd like to say thank you to our partners, Arts Council England, Norwich City Council, Degger Books, The Crime Vault and Norwich Business Improvement District. We're also supported by Norfolk County Council, Gerald and Visit Norwich.
1: Yeah, we've been so pleased to be able to deliver Noirage this year, despite the various difficulties. We'll be back next year, of course, hopefully in person at Dragon Hall and the University of East Anglia. If you have questions or want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. Head over to our Facebook page or go to our website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk, where you can also sign up to our lovely weekly newsletter created by none other than Stephanie McKenna.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people to find and listen to it.
0: Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode.